I'm not trying to I'm not trying to be a tough guy here, okay? I'm just asking a question. I just wanna know if it's a drug song. If it's not a drug song, I wanna know if it's a Does it sound like a drug song to anybody else? Okay, it's not a drug song. Is it about Okay, okay, so hang on hang on to our ego. Let's all just hang on to our egos and record this one. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Sail On podcast. This is Wyatt in Nashville, Tennessee. And over there, that's Jason Brewer. Yo, what's up, everyone? It's good to be back. We were on a little jaunt, if you will, a tour of sorts, a summer safari all over the place. And um, thank you guys for coming out and seeing us. Um, We have... A little tribute to the Beach Boys called Sail On, and uh, wanted to thank a few folks for coming out and saying, hey, um, Beth, <laughs> thank you very much for coming to see us in Tybee Island. Sean Fletcher, thanks for coming to see us up in Massachusetts. Doug, Sue, and Damien in New Jersey, always a pleasure. And Nick and Chad and Ruben in Woodstock, Georgia. Great meeting you guys. Great seeing everybody um, home for about a week right now, and then we're back on the road. We've got a few shows coming up this month. Where are we going to be, Jason? Well, we've got several shows this month. We're playing on July 12 at the Iron Horse Music Hall in Northampton, Mass. We've got July 13th in Old Saybrook, Connecticut at the Kate, and we have... July 14th at Daryl's house in Pauling, New York. And all the way at the end of the month, July 27th, we'll be in Vidalia, Georgia. Go to our website, sailonsounds.com, if you want more info on all those. That's right. And we'd appreciate it if you gave us a heads up. That way we can make, maybe make plans to hang with you before or after the gig. But enough about us. Let's get into some Beach Boys news. So, as everyone knows, Brian had to cancel a big portion of his summer tour due to some mental health issues, and uh, somebody posted on a Beach Boys group, a guy by the name of Leon Lively, a uh, an address to write mail to Brian, some get well, some get well messages. So, I'm going to put that address in our show notes if you guys want to send some well wishes to Brian. I'm sure that he and his family would appreciate it. And uh, we all are thinking of Brian right now and hoping that he comes back stronger than ever for the awesome tour coming up with the zombies. So, also, we have a, uh, speaking of Facebook, a Facebook group called Sail On, the Beach Boys Appreciation Group. And 
as of today, we just hit a thousand members. So that's pretty dang cool. Uh, check it out. There's a lot of great discussion going on there. We talk about anything and everything. It's a very open forum and everybody is very nice and cordial. And uh, I think it's a really fun spot. So I'm really proud of it. Uh, another really cool thing that I saw this past week was a video published by Sound on Sound magazine called Remixing the Beach Boys featuring Mark Lynette. So you guys should check that out. There's a link in the show notes. Um, really interesting, especially dealing with uh, some of the stuff that we're talking about in these Pet Sounds episodes and definitely moving into the smile stuff. So check that out. It's very informative and very nerdy. And uh, I loved it. Moving into some voicemails. It's been a minute since we've listened to some voicemails. So I've got a couple interesting ones today to talk about. First one is from George Faulkner. Hey guys, uh, George Faulkner calling. I just listened to your Murray Wilson episode, loved it, and um, I thought I would just add a little bit of context because I've been researching Murray's work quite a bit uh, recently. I decided about 17 years ago to record an album of lost Murray Wilson songs. You know, the internet was still young, so I had a great deal of difficulty with my research back then. But last year in 2018, I decided to give the research another shot. Um, And I found that Murray wrote about 50 songs. The first one uh, in 1941 when he was 24 years old. And the last one documented uh, the year he passed away. About 20 of his songs were recorded and released in his lifetime by a small variety of acts. About 30 of his compositions were never recorded though. And those 30 have proven impossible to find copies of uh, so far, which is another reason why, you know, I wanted to call just to get the word out. Um, Evidence strongly suggests that more titles were written, um, but since no documentation has been found past that core 50, I just kind of stick to talking about about those. Um, The, you know, the sad part, the sad twist in this story is that the United States Library of Congress confirmed that all of Murray's submissions were destroyed by them as they had been kept, quote, for the longest period considered practicable and desirable. Um, But Murray would also often mail copies of songs to himself for copyright purposes. Um, And some of those are out there uh, in the tight grip of collectors. But, you know, overlooking his songs with the Beach Boys, Spring, Sunrays, and his Many Moods album, uh, I've only been able to find eight of his songs so far. Um, I've recorded three of them. I released Two Step, Side Step a couple of years ago, uh, and I have a seven-inch single coming out in November of 2019 with two um, additional obscure tracks of his. So I've had help from a ton of Beach Boy insiders, historians, publishers, librarians, and 
you know, I really hope the single gets some attention because I like to think that there's a box with handwritten Murray music sitting in a storage facility in L.A. somewhere waiting to be remembered. And when it's found, I'd love to record more of these songs. Um, you know, the other thing I would point out is like, um, if you ever do a show on Murray again, talk to Fred Vale. Uh, he's one of the people I've spoken with. He's a big Murray supporter and has nothing but positive things to say about his experiences with Murray and, you know, um, a great guy to talk to. Anyway, um, thanks for uh, putting up with me and uh, love the show. Keep it going. And um, I'm a genius too, you know. See you. Hey, George. Really awesome to hear from you. Really great version of Two Step Sidestep. Love that. And I look forward to hearing your uh, next single release. And um, yeah, we've talked about Fred Vale before. He does live in Nashville. I've never actually spoken to him about the Beach Boys. I've met him a couple times uh, just in passing. But um, that is an intriguing aspect of him that he has nothing but positive things to say about Murray because they dealt with each other a lot in the early days. So that's kind of cool. And I've always been a, a big fan of, of Murray's music, especially um, the many moods of Murray Wilson. So good. And I always wondered where all his songs were that he wrote because uh, we've only heard a few. So, you know, with, with someone as diligent as yourself working on it, it's only a matter of time. Uh, thanks for listening, man. Next voicemail is from Mikey McPherson. Hey, my name is Mikey McPherson, and I uh, just started listening to your podcast, but I see that you're starting your uh, Pet Sound Saga, and uh, I wanted to share my uh, Beach Boys experience. I got my first Beach Boys CD. Uh, it was the Sounds of Summer compilation um, from 2003, I think it was. I would have been about nine years old uh, playing that on my Sony uh, Discman, and I uh, that was my first CD and my first real foray into uh, Beach Boys, but I didn't really get into them until I started, uh, uh, you know, doing a little skateboarding in college. I was searching for uh, some music I could skate to, and I remembered, uh, you know, the Beach Boys are just really cool. So I was looking for some of their uh, instrumental surf tracks. So I was uh, drawn to like, uh, you know, uh, tripping and. Uh, um, Oh man, uh, Moon Dog, I really like. Um, but then I experienced like a loneliest summer uh, three years ago, and I heard "That's Not Me" from Pet Sounds, and it was my first time ever hearing uh, anything from Pet Sounds besides, you know, the major hits like "Sloop" and uh, you know, "Wouldn't It Be Nice" and, and "God Only Knows," uh, which all appeared on Sounds of Summer. And to hear uh, "That's Not Me" and I just wasn't made for these times. And, um, I know there's an answer, you know, just in the throes of loneliness and living in Indianapolis. That was really significant for me. And that's what really got me diving deep into uh, the discography after that. I, I think I have a new favorite album by the Beach Boys every week. Right now, I'm really trying to appreciate Smiley Smile. Um, I really like Love You. Um, Adult Child, even though it's a bootleg, is just so good. I love that uh, on Broadway. Really good stuff. All right. Love the show. Uh, keep it up. Bye. Hey, Mikey, great voicemail. Pretty awesome that you were looking for music to skate to. I dig that. 
um, it's cool that the Beach Boys kind of landed in that place for you with skateboarding. That's pretty awesome. Little sidewalk surfing. You know, kicking off your Beach Boys knowledge with uh, Sounds of Summer. That's a, you know, what a great way. What a great collection of amazing, amazing tunes. I think that album sold almost as much as, as Endless Summer. So it's a really big entry point for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, that's not me. And I just wasn't made for these times. And I know there was an answer. I mean, I'm sure once you heard those, it just knocked you out the same way it did me. And you even brought up Adult Child, Wyatt. How about that? Um, so, yeah, it's one of my favorites. Yeah, me we, too. Uh, we jam that a lot. It's a great collection of songs and really unique and a nice little um, inside look at, at the mind of Brian Wilson in 1977. And one and one thing Mikey said that I, I didn't touch on there was that, you know, he said that, you know, kind of the Pet Sounds material and some of the loneliness and melancholy within that stuff was what gave him the inkling to go deeper into the catalog. You know, he says growing up in Indianapolis and things like that. And so, I mean, I think there's a lot of us out there who have dealt with those feelings at one point in time, who are kind of like super fans of the deeper stuff. So I think that's a common thread. So, you know, I can relate to that, Mikey. Thanks for the voicemail. Yeah, man. Really awesome story. Glad you called in. All right. Um, we're going to check back in with our buddy, David Beard. I recently did a phone interview with him. And um, this guy just has stories upon stories He's been covering the Beach Boys for a number of years in his publication, Endless Summer Quarterly. If you don't know about it, you've got to check it out. It's awesome. And um, we had to cut it short because we just could not stop talking. So uh, I'm going to play an excerpt of that for you guys. Hope you enjoy it. Southern California in the early 60s, man. It was a lot of fun. A lot of surfing, drag races, and riding the surf. So wax up your board and let's hang 10 with the Beach Boys. So we're back again with Mr. David Beard. How are you today, David? Doing well. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, man. Thank you for taking the time. We're all really big fans of what you do. Tell us like, how you got first involved in this whole world of the Beach Boys. Well, I think really like any... Well, I would say like anyone else, once you hear the music and you put the name with the music, you're kind of hooked, um, which is true. But I think probably through, I, re, I do recall having a copy of Best of the Beach Boys because I was a member of one of those, either RCA or Columbia Record Club things where you get a, 10 albums for a penny or a dime or whatever it used to be. 
And I know I had a Best of the Beach Boys. And, but somewhere in 79 or 80, I ended up, just by chance, uh, had the TV on and the Jan and Dean TV movie Dead Man's Curve uh, came on. And I loved the music. There was a scene in the movie, and of course it's a Beach Boy song, but there was a scene in it that was really edited and cut well. And it's where Jan and Dean have their surfboards, and they're standing at the on the shore right next to the waves coming in. And one says to the other, hey, you know, this would sound really great on tape. It had to be the Jan character. Cause, <laughs> and uh, Dean goes, what? And he goes, this would sound so great on tape. And he goes, what? Like, what are you talking about? And it cuts right to Jan and Dean doing their version of surfing. And I really didn't know much about the Beach Boys even then. Um, it wasn't until I went to a local record store, and back in the early 80s, record stores were everywhere. And uh, I went in and bought the Jan and Dean Anthology album because I just wanted to know more about these guys. It's the story that I saw on TV. A lot of this stuff is a co-writer, particularly Surf City, which was Jan and Dean's biggest hit. And I just thought, okay, I want to know more about these guys. I want to know more about Brian Wilson. I want to know more about this this sound. And the first thing I think I discovered was that they were buddies. Jan and Dean and the Beach Boys were buddies. And then that they sang on each other's records. So, like, the version of Surfin', for example, and Surfin' Safari that Jan and Dean recorded has the Beach Boys backing them up. So it just was really intriguing to me that these guys all came from the same general area out in Los Angeles. And and that Brian, and I slowly discovered that Brian was the guy. Um, it took me until I remember really digging all summer long immediately. Just everything about it, the energy of the album. Um, but it took me until I was in my early 20s, I had to be about 21 or 22 when I was driving in the car and listening to Pet Sounds for a cassette player uh, and I can't tell you how many times I've been listening to it, but I've heard it enough but it was, I remember being in my car and having it sink in um, to the point where I wasn't just listening to music anymore uh, that I found myself feeling as though I was personally connected to what I was listening to. And that's a different type of experience than just singing along. And, of course, there are those songs on Pet Sounds like Wouldn't It Be Nice and God Only Knows and Slip John B. And several others, in fact, that are just like, that's not me is fun to sing along to. But when you, once, you, once, you're, um, once there's a cognitive level of engagement beyond just the, that fun and the sun imagery, which is what well, I, you know, is how I got hooked. Um, that 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 that's when I really, that's when I kind of got lost in the Beach Boys world. Is is once once there was kind of an engagement on a on a cognitive level. I've heard a ton of different sort of origin stories as far as people getting into the band, but I think you're the first person that discovered the Beach Boys through. Jan and Dean. <laughs> like it's usually the other way around for most of the people I talk yeah. to. So that's pretty, that's pretty incredible. And so how do you get to the point where you're not only um, a fan of the Beach Boys, but also, you know, in a position to really call yourself a friend of, of 
a lot of these guys and the people in the in the extended Beach Boys family? Wow, that's a that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, there's not a there's not a uh, like a dummies guide. You can't go. <laughs> you know, what are those books you can buy like the dummies <laughs> yeah. guide to something? Yeah. <laughs> I don't right. have that. Um, I had. Um, I loved music so much when I when I got out of high school. I spent a year just goofing off because I didn't know what it was I wanted to do. Um, but I knew I wanted it to be somehow linked to music, and um, so I ended up going to broadcast school in Knoxville, Tennessee, at the Professional Academy of Broadcasting. And that what that did is it, it gave me the tools to understand production. It gave me the tools to understand, you know, announcing on air, which is really the easiest part of it. If you're somebody who's an outgoing personality, learning to talk on air is nothing except flipping a switch. But I was, I, I was really, um, at that age, uh, coming out of high school, the things that, that had enticed me towards the idea of being a radio DJ or thinking that that was cool was films like American Graffiti with Wolfman Jack. Uh, Wolfman Jack making an appearance as the Jackal in the Jan and Dean TV movie, uh, the show WKRP in Cincinnati. Um, Casey Kasem's Top 40. Those things all uh, influenced me. And that's what the, the idea of going to broadcast school was kind of the, the thing that drew me. And so I did that, and I think by going to broadcast school... I, I slowly, you know, once I got out, I was working at a major uh, oldie station in here in the Charlotte market. But as I got to meet people, I just realized early on that just, you know, wherever they came from or whatever they do in their living, they all just get dressed and go to sleep like the rest of us. And um, so that's kind of how I looked at everybody, and I do. I, I try to, and I, and I think that's, I'm guessing, I'm not saying this is true, I'm guessing. I think what the Beach Boys like about me is that I have no agenda. I only want to talk to them about what they want to talk about. And that's how I started it. And then as the years went on, and I've been able to fine-tune and say, okay, I'm this, in this particular edition of Endless Summer Quarterly, I'm going to talk about pet sounds or... And this one, I'm going to talk about Daryl, the, the, like the latest one, a tribute to Daryl Dragon. So it's, it's, you know, you do something long enough, and then they just see it. And there's been some bumps in the roads where, you know, uh, like when the members themselves kind of fell out of, I don't know, when, when there was some discord. And there's been, there's been different intervals of discord with the group. I... Um, I just did my best to treat them equally because they're they they're they're each and every one of them is a is around roughly the same age. Um, each and every one of them changes my life musically. More so, well, and if you're getting to get into this discussion about Brian Wilson, then obviously Brian changed my life in ways I'm still discovering. That again, that's that cognitive thing. Um, but with the other guys, you know, I, I slew, you know, once you get into the group, and I'm sure you've done this, you, once you get into the group, you start going, okay, who's singing lead here? Who's doing this? Who's doing that? You know? 
And that's, that's kind of its own discovery. That's kind of its own road. So I always just look at this music because I just genuinely, truly love music. Like I sing in my church choir. Music and I are like, I, I cannot live without music. And I think it's that just that true, honest connection to music that keeps me really innocent in that way. And I think they just like that. And in the early days when I first got to know them in different different settings, I'd tell jokes and stuff like that again. But that's my the personality that I use through my broadcast experience, you know. But it was me, and I've always been true to me. I don't I don't have some other personality, you know. Some people go on the some people who do radio, they go on the air and they're somebody else. But that was never my bad. <laughs> I tried it when I first started, and it was, it was not the way I turned. You know, I just changed my name. So when I went on the air, I, I, was, I think my name was Martin Davis, um, just, just to have a little bit more anonymity. And it just didn't go well. So I, I knew at an early age that, that, that creating anything false or doing anything false or doing anything for a false reason, um, in, as a rule, is not the way to go. And um, so I just think, I just think uh, that's, that's what they appreciate about me. Um, but, you know, you, you just, you just, st- just stay the course of who you are and do what you do. And, and actually Dean Torrance has kind of been a mentor to me because, you know, Dean comes from a graphic world, you know? Um, and so when I started doing <clears throat> He was my first interview ever going back to August of 93. We didn't know each other or anything like that, but he was very encouraging. And he, and I remember being very nervous and my voice was shaky on the phone because I couldn't believe I was talking to Dean Torrance. Um, And you go through that, you know, you, you do experience that and and you never know, you never know which guy it's going to be with or when it's going to happen. Like when I met the Moody Blues, I was just, but I Standing next to Justin Hayward, it was I was lucky to get the word out. Hello, um, sure. It was like it was like that moment in a Wayne's World, you know, where they're going, "We're not worthy." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's kind of how it is. That's really kind of you feel that way. But after a point, and the, the thing that I thought was interesting about your question was the word friends. What I did early on is I never I never thought to myself that I'm going to be friends with these guys one day. That, that was never a part of what I was doing um, because, we, and, I, and I've said this to other people, the beach, these people have enough friends, you know, they've, they've got their personal friends and their, and their families already. Um, and that's true with anybody who's a, a le- you know, legendary person, you know, they've, They've got their friends. So the idea of trying to be a friend, I think is, a you know, I think that's a fool's journey. You just, you know, I, I didn't set out that way. It wasn't, uh, you know, I'm in my second marriage now and I didn't even think of Dean as a friend until I was in my uh, divorce, going through my divorce in 2006, 2007. And I got, I was just talking to him on the phone. He said, where you been? And told him what I was going through. And he then shared what he, he had gone through in, in, in his marriage and, and told me how he made it he made it work. And then at the end of the phone call, as we were saying goodbye, he said to me, I'm honored that you chose to share this with me. And I realized that this guy 
valued me beyond this rule of just being an editor of a magazine. So it's you. It's not. It, there was never a purpose. You know, there was never a. Um, Oh, I'm gonna be, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I gotta, okay, I'm, I'm Dean's friend, okay, who's next? It was, never, right. <laughs> you know, that was never the thought process, um, because as I, I mentioned bumps in the road. There were times when, and this is true with anything in life, I've found in my experience that if you, if if something off happens where it's it's awkward or it's not comfortable, you just have to let time take care of it, you know. You don't want to, yeah. Like my my personality years ago was was probably a little bit more controlling, and and, and if you're like that, where your mind is like, well, I want to fix this right now, um, you know, patience is a virtue, and uh, and I, I found in my experience with those guys that it's just um, what I did is I just continued to do what I was doing. And if I had a couple of awkward moments with any particular member, it, it, it's all worked itself out. And, it, and, you know, keep in mind, Wyatt, I did the magazine from 93 till 20, 20, 2014 before I was contacted to do, I, was, I put in a, a page about an ad for ESQ in the 2014 program. And then I was asked to put in a, a bio about me next to that ad. And this is so that surprised me. And then in 2015, I was commissioned to do the uh, summer days and summer nights tour program. And then in 2016, I was commissioned to do the Beach Boys Good Vi- 50 Years of Good Vibrations tour program. And it was very satisfying to me to learn that that program sold out. And I did that with Dean. Dean Dean's Dean's uh, the the cover of that program is Dean all Dean. He uh, he came up with that airbrush lettering, um, and that Volkswagen buggy van. So that's Dean on the that's Dean's work on the cover, and then what we ended up doing for that program, and then the subsequent um, hardcover coffee table book that I put together uh, with Jacqueline Love, um, which is on Amazon now. Um, that thing is a time capsule. That that's everything that took place. I mean, I tried to in a in a pictorial form, uh, kind of take the you know people who are fans through late '65 all the way through the end of '66 to so they they could, they could appreciate the success that the Beach Boys were uh, enjoying. Um, and it's and it's a strange and it's really strange getting into that history because. Uh, I hope I've answered your question, <laughs> but but to continue my thought process here, it's really strange getting into the history of pet sounds and good vibrations because you're dealing with a you're dealing with an incredible time, but you're also dealing with a bit of a fracture in within the band's construct, and you know. It, but at the same time, they were still strong. They had an understanding of what they were doing. You know, they knew they'd come in from the road, Brian would have stuff ready, and then they would work on it. They knew that. Um, but that fracture began to happen because Brian was using Mike less. But if you look at the – and Mike talked to me about this when I interviewed him back in 2016. You know, the reality was they came back and they didn't have a whole lot of time on their hands. You know, they'd come back from the road – and they'd go right into the studio, sometimes the very next morning, and they'd be just worn out. 
So I I don't I don't look at pet sound. I, it's it's uh, if you ask me three different ways, I might have three different answers about pet sounds. One one view I have of pet sounds is it's Brian Wilson's project, and he brought the Beach Boys in to sing on it. And it's not completely fair to Carl because he played guitar on it. Um, but it's almost it's almost as though Brian created a template in 1966. That was this is my work. You sing on it, and then I release it, and I'll put I'll put the group's name on it. And the reason I bring that up is back you know further you know down the road in 1992 when Mike releases what well, the Beach Boys release Summer in Paradise. Um, I look at that album the same way I think about what I just described for Pet Sounds. I look at Summer in Paradise as a Mike Love and Terry Melcher template. And they brought the Beach Boys in to sing, and then they put the Beach Boys' name on it and released it. And the big, the unfortunate, I don't want to get too deep into Summer in Paradise, but the really (laughs) unfortunate thing about that album is that Terry Melcher was discovering Pearl Tools and went went nuts. And the whole, you know, so the album is Pearl Tools, but... It became synthesized, and you the last thing you should do to any Beach Boys album is put a synthesized drummer or or or, or synthesized vocals on a vocal group album. Um, so those that those are the those are the technical mistakes they made even before they released the the album. And I think that's why if you if if the album had if Summer in Paradise had done well. And was actually a successful album. You could make the argument for it to go back and be re, you know, go back and re-record all those tracks with real instruments. And if you were to listen to Summer in Paradise with that in mind and think, "Wow, this would be so different if this were not necessarily a Brian Wilson production, but just real instruments." So, it, you know, but they did what they did. So I look at Summer in Paradise as a Mike Love Terry Melcher outing with the Beach Boys providing vocals, similar to how I look at, mostly look at Pet Sounds as a Brian Wilson template with the Beach Boys providing vocals. Sure. I don't know if I've ever heard anyone um, draw a comparison between those two records before, and that's pretty incredible. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) it's, I mean, it's spot on. And and I feel the same way about, um, about a lot of the 80s output from the Beach Boys and especially Brian's uh, 1988 solo album, I feel like some of the some of the uh, issues that I have with that record are because of the overuse of synthesizers and drum machines. Yes, so, yes. Uh, I, I yeah. love that record, but I think you know, like you said, like if you had a real band behind it and you know, uh, just a more timeless sound, it would be more appreciated today. And oh yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and I, and I like a lot of the songs on uh, Summer in Paradise, and I'm a big Terry Melcher fan, but I think, yeah, I think a big reason why it doesn't get their respect is because of the, the synthesizers and all that. But, you know, not to get too into that, like you said, but that is really interesting. It's, you know, it's, uh, I know you guys have been talking about pet sounds, and I'm curious about, where where you are with that and and what you know so i think this uh, episode we're talking about um hang on to your ego and subsequently you know um i know there's an answer i think next will be uh don't talk will be our next uh, um okay. topic too but 
I mean, it's it's the one album that we've gotten to where I realized that we're going to have to spend a lot more time covering and breaking down all these songs because we've had um, usually it it you can get it an album done for us the discussion in in an hour or two hours and as we started prepping for the pet sounds episodes um, like you know wouldn't it be nice got an, got its own episode sleep john b got its own episode and it was like we realized very quickly it was going to take a lot longer so and yeah. you know with you know i think most people would expect that it's these songs there's a lot more to dig into and there's a lot more to talk about so um we're yeah. taking our time with it and you know i'm excited to to go past this and also like you know see how how it works with the smile sessions because that's something that's going to be really difficult for us to kind of break down and kind of figure out how to make a make a show out of it because it's there's a lot of uh fragments as you know that that are kind of hard to place and i think you know we've got a couple people that are going to help us out with that but that's Mm going to be one of the more difficult things that we have to do it's not just a record it's a it's a kind of a a puzzle that never that never got finished so yeah it's 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 pretty intense, but as far as right now, yeah, we're having a we're having a good time, just kind of getting nerdy and going deep with these songs. Yeah, um, yeah. Do you do you know that the first time that the group heard Sloop John B. finished, where Brian dropped out the, you know, the track, right? They were in Japan. Oh, did he play it over the phone for them? No, no. They were they were at a reception um, when they first got over to Japan, and this is January of '66. Because if you ever look at, you know, those very popular pictures of the guys in the studio, the black and white pictures right. during Pet Sounds, Brian's got the glasses on and they're all around the microphone. Yep. That's Sloop John B. Gotcha. And the reason, yeah. I, the reason I know that, <laughs> and I discovered this after I did the 2016 tour program, there is a picture of Brian behind, in the booth mm-hmm. on the board. And next to him's the the I can't remember the guy's name. It's not it's not Chuck Britz. Um but eggnog, containers of eggnog are sitting next to Brian. Right, right. So that says December sixty-five. And in December sixty-five, they were recording Sloop John B. Right. So those that, that's what those pictures are from. That's a funny catch. Yeah. I, well, I mean, without the eggnog, there's no way that you can put yeah, you can't date it. You know, it, really. a time frame to it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So they they worked. They finished uh, their vocals for Sloop in December of '65. So then they took off to go to their tour to Japan. And so they're they're at a reception, and Brian wanted the guys to hear it. So he had an acetate sent or something. That's how Bruce told me, and and they played it at the reception for the first time. And that's where the guys heard it in Japan, and they flipped out. They just, they just thought, "Oh my god, wow!" <laughs> you know, they just thought, "Oh my god, this, you know, this, he, he, Brian's done it again." Um, and he did. <laughs> he just took an ordinary song and made it great. Um, but that's that's what he did, man. That's the that's the, that's the, the Midas touch of Brian Wilson. Oh, hey, since we're talking about Brian so much, I, I just would like to, anybody listening, um, just say that um, 
I, I personally would appreciate it if we all just kept uh, Brian in our thoughts and prayers. And in those thoughts and prayers, when I have those thoughts and prayers, uh, I'm, I'm very thankful. So, um, this is in reference to Brian's June letter, and yeah. I'm, I'm hopeful that, that everything going forward is really good for him. Um, but, uh, when I'm, you know, when I, when I think about Brian, I just want him to be happy. I don't know what that is for him. I, I, if I were, if I were to tell you, I do know what that is, I would be assuming too much. I do know that he's responsible for changing my life. <laughs> um, so it's my heartfelt, uh, ask to anyone is just to keep Brian, uh, and all the guys. In your thoughts and prayers, uh, yeah, you know, as, as a thanks, as, as nothing more than a thank you, because um, they've done they they've done so much for us musically. They, you know, they've. I love what Terry Melcher said in the Endless Harmony documentary from 1998. Brian Wilson created an industry, and he did. Yeah, I mean, I can't thank him enough, and and the rest of the Beach Boys for you know, changing my life as well. And, and, you know, I know a lot of our listeners feel the same way. So I appreciate that sentiment. Um, of course. And, uh, of course. I mean, you answered like a lot of the questions I actually had. I, I was going to ask you about <laughs> Brian as well. Um, and I feel like we're going to have to continue this discussion when we get into the smile sessions in a few months. Um, cause that is such a undertaking, but I'd love to, um, have you back to talk about that i would love that it's my um it's my favorite collection of work by any artist wow. ever yeah i was gonna ask i think um you know a lot of people um just consider pet sounds the the, the top of the mountain but it sounds like you're um sounds like you're a big smile fan so well yeah there's you know <laughs> before yeah before the end of 66 75 percent of the album was just about there yeah yeah. And it's, you know, I've spent, <laughs> I, gosh, I can't, I'm, this is a guess. I've spent probably at least a year over my lifespan, a year's worth of time listening to smile music and working at it and dissecting it and understanding it, but easily a year out of my life, if not two. Wow. That I've that I've just poured over that stuff because I yeah. was discovering Smile back in '88 and '89 right, right. on the vinyl bootlegs. So yeah, I've got a bunch of vegetable sessions that haven't even seen. Well, for those who have the unsurpassed masters, they've got them. Right. Um, yeah. So there's there's this. Um, it's it's wonderful work. Even 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 the unfinished fragments are wonderful works. But yeah, let's uh, <laughs> let's let's yeah, stop let's there because we're never day. gonna <laughs> we're never gonna stop talking about it. Um, everybody knows where to go: esquarterly.com. Check it out. New issue covering um, Daryl Dragon is out now, and um, everybody go check it out. Thank you very much, David, for coming on. We look forward to talking to you again. All right, Wyatt. Thank you. Heavier. 
And he, he just said, I'm gonna do the greatest album. And he did it. I remember when the album was completely finished and he brought home the demo disc of the album. And we just, you know, laid down on the bed and just listened. It was like heaven. I mean, he was so proud. All right, that was an excerpt from our interview with David Beard. You can check out the whole thing over on the Patreon page. If you like extra content, check it out. It's patreon.com slash on. I wanted to say thanks to a few of our patrons. Peter Sal, Zach, Kara Fisher, Jeremy Pierce, Josh Carlson, Lage Benston, Stuart White, Eric Gordon. Thank you guys for supporting the show. There are some really fun episodes coming up over there on the Patreon page. I recorded a day in the life of our tribute band a couple weeks ago, and I'm working on that episode right now. It is a all-access pass to the exciting life and times of a Beach Boys tribute band, <laughs> so um, stay tuned for that. So we've been talking about pet sounds, as you guys know, and I was hoping that we could get through it in five or six episodes and here we are six episodes in and we are nowhere near finished so you know i mean there's nothing wrong with that i just uh man there's just so much to talk about and we've been having a great time doing it so we're just going to keep going song by song and today we're going to be talking about a song that has a little bit of controversy built into it uh it originally started off as a song called let go of your ego back in February of this song with his buddy and uh, Beach Boys road manager Terry Sachin. The track itself was recorded on February 9th, 1966 at Western Recorders. And you've got the Wrecking Crew, of course, our usual suspects here. Let's make it again. This time we're going to record with a tape recorder. Brad? Here we go. Brad, yes. you want me to lay out again after that instrumental break and then come back in with the forest toward the end of the like before we may have you wail on that baby for the instrumental break. Think you can do it? I'll play it straight through this. Try to wail doing this a thing, you know. Okay. Here we go. This'll be what? Okay. Take two. Just relax. Me and this other cat are gonna straighten you guys out, and then we'll get you know world peace. You ever hear that album called How to Speak Hip? Has anybody ever heard it? Oh, it's funny. It's How to Speak Hip by Del Close and John Brennan. It was cut in '59. It's a very funny album. Okay, let's go. This is a take uh, two. Take two. Let go of your ego. Totally hip, man. They had already done a lot of rehearsal on this song, as you can tell right from the beginning. They had a pretty good grasp of the arrangement as far as like them putting together the track. But um, it starts off with the organ and piano played by Larry Nectil and Al Delori. They're joined on bass by Lyle Ritz and Ray Pullman. And Hal Blaine was originally on the drum set, but he got moved to tambourine after take one.
You've got Julius Wechter on timpani playing some beautiful runs. And then the guitars are very similar, in my opinion, to You Still Believe in Me. You've got Barney Kessel with his mando guitar, and then Glenn Campbell playing the 12 string. My man! Lots of uh, chimey 12 string sounds here that uh, kind of drive the song along with that combo a, organ tack piano sound. It's all a little out of tune, too. Yeah, which makes it so. Which sparkly. makes it awesome. It makes like, it great. It just ma- I know I'm getting all excited over here. Sorry, Wyatt, but I am. Because, How dare you? I know, because I get so excited about this track because it's one of my favorites. So, anyway, it's like all kind of out of tune and funky. And that's what I love about it because it, it it's like, it's funny. You think about Pet Sounds, you think about the Beach Boys here, and you think about, oh, it's got to be perfect. But it never was perfect. It was very human. And that's the thing about it I love. The biggest thing that leaps out to me about this track and that stands out is the bass harmonica played by Tommy Morgan. It's really driving the song and it, and it becomes the lead instrument by the instrumental break and it's pretty amazing and uh you can hear brian just telling him man just just wail on that thing Um, as was the case on many of these tracking sessions, the AFM contract sheet doesn't designate what horns or woodwinds are being played. But as far as I can tell, it's uh, flutes by Paul Horn and Jim Horn, and then clarinets by Steve Douglas, Bobby Klein, and Jay Migliori. We've talked about it before, but often it is uh, miscredited as saxophones or something else completely, but pretty sure it's clarinets and flutes. Um, And they are featured originally throughout the song more prominently, but um, later on you can really just hear them on the breakdown sections, which are really awesome. Libido, libido, take nine. That's funny. By take 12, they have the master take. They just added an overdub by Glenn Campbell doing the banjo. So is anyone else into the fact that sometimes Brian, on especially on these sessions you hear, he kind of like mispronounces words like libido and things like that and how just funny that is to me? <laughs> I think that's I think that's part of his just kind of hip speak type yeah, thing. You yeah, know? I know. Yeah, he's just really into, I don't know. I think he's kind of a nerd and I think, you know, all of a sudden he's hanging out with guys like Lauren Schwartz and getting all these new influences and trying to speak hip as, 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 uh, 
as he said. So, you know, I think part of that is just it's funny. It's like that thing him. that Mike Love said in some interviews, I think in one of the documentaries, how, you know, Brian was the brilliant brain, uh, sensitive guy, and Mike was the kind of like more socially in tune guy, which is kind of funny to think about that. But, um, but Mike's the like socially in tune guy and he'd always would like, you know, try to help Brian be cool. So this is just more people trying to help Brian be cool. <laughs> yeah. I think you're, you're onto it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this track is awesome. It's very different from, um, outside of the, you know, just the overall, composition but it's there's also some interesting things like the banjo and the bass harmonica that set it apart from some of the other songs of the period and uh, you know compositionally it's it's got some really interesting movement in it of course back to what i was saying about a few other tracks the bass writing they're not really going where they should and and there's all sorts of weird inversions happening and that's what makes a lot of these songs really interesting and the movements are so cool originally they just did a uh well brian did a guide vocal the title by the time he did the vocal was hang on to your ego i know so many people who think they can do it now they isolate their head and stay in their safety Um, I always wondered if um, Let Go of Your Ego was the influence for uh, Let Go My Ego, which didn't come around till the 70s. I'm just throwing that out there. It's quite possible. But, um, yeah. Uh, a couple weeks later, when the Beach Boys came into the studio to do their vocals, Mike Love was throwing down his parts. And you can tell he's kind of joking around with it a little bit. He's doing some impressions. And... He actually gives it a shot singing through all of it, singing through the pre-chorus and chorus that would later be assigned to Al and Brian. They isolate their heads and stay in their safety zone. Is that me? That's me. Oh. Ah. What can you tell them? What can you say that won't make them defensive? Hey, I can sing that whole son of a bitch by myself. Once he gets his part, they call Al into the booth to do his parts. And it takes a long time for Al to get his little pre-chorus and, and bits down. It goes on for about 25 minutes. Brian coaching Al through the part. It's clear that Brian's very specific about the melody and rhythm. And he wants it to be just perfect. I don't know. I just don't feel that shit. Please, uh, please do with me. Or with, maybe you ought to just sing it. I'll do it. It'll take some with me. Unless you really want to do, do it. it together, if you want to do it, man, do it. I do want to do it. I okay, really do. Okay, we'll just do it then. But I, I want to do it with a minimum of hassle. Hey, if you don't want to do it, I'll do it. Hey, he'll do it. Wow, it's <laughs> shit. a contract. Please. Hey, back it up and practice. Okay. Please. Right. It's a nice contract. It's a matter of opinion. Do you think maybe Mike should sing the whole thing? Okay, come on. 
Now what can you tell them? Now what can you say that won't make them defensive? It's pretty funny. Mike is like, hey, if you don't want to do it, Al, I'll do it. And then Al's saying, like, I don't know. I just I just don't feel it. I need your help, Brian. I can't do this. So Brian comes down and into the studio and does uh, sings it with him. And um, eventually Al gets it. They isolate their heads and stay in their safety zone. I know we are. Come on. I'll do it. Hey, Mike. I'll try it again. Once more, Brian. They isolate their heads and stay in their safety zone. Stay in their safety zone. Come on, hard. They isolate their heads and stay in their safety zones. Really? Now, what can you say that won't make them defensive? What can you say that won't make them defensive? And I think it was around this point that Mike had a discussion with Brian about the lyric and the content therein. I was very skeptical about doing any of that stuff. It looked at, looked askance at, at anything having to do with that kind of drug culture influence. All I was saying is I would make my feelings known if I felt it was going too far out on a limb lyrically or conceptually, having uh, some relationship to some kind of drugs and stuff like that. I didn't know what an ego was at the time, but I, I learned very quickly. So I came up with a, an alternative lyric called, I know there's an answer. And then Brian says, I wrote that after taking acid, about taking acid. People took it to get away from themselves, but that wasn't the right way to take it. It was supposed to make you go deeper into yourself. I wanted to remind people that they could survive everything best if they remembered who they were. Mike didn't like the title. He didn't like the idea of it. He kept telling me that he wasn't going to sing a song about drugs. Eventually, I decided that maybe he was right, partly because of what the song itself was saying. I had to remember who we were. We were the Beach Boys. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of difference really outside of the title. Um, Hang on to your ego became, I know there's an answer. And there's um, one other different line in the, in kind of the last part of it where he says, uh, now how can I come on and tell them the way that they live could be better? Originally it said, how can I say it? And how can I come on when I know I'm guilty? So I think, you know, uh, not a huge difference there. You can still kind of get the overall scope of the song, but I do understand where Mike was coming from. Um, and I think, you know, they wanted to be very careful about what they were promoting as far as, you know, their image and they were still America's band and they didn't want to get too caught up in this drug subculture at the time. You know, what's funny. Like, I think like even like an edgier group, like the Beatles, you know, they're a lot, a little edgier than the Beach Boys for sure. But, you know, the Beatles never even had an outright song where it was just like, do drugs <laughs> or whatever. Right. I mean, they would sneak in little, and, and John would be pretty conscious of this, like, especially on the later stuff, you know, they would sneak in little things and they would have, 
imagery, but it was never blatant. And so what was interesting, I don't even think hang on to your ego necessarily was, or let go of your ego or whatever you want to, whatever it is, um, was necessarily blatant, but it was pretty early in the game because the Beatles weren't anywhere, you know. I mean, I guess they were doing Revolver, which was pretty trippy, but still nothing on Revolver was blatantly do drugs or whatever. So I don't know. I think what Mike added to it, he kind of turned it around into a thing that was a little more ambiguous, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I think you're right. And I I really do like... Um, Mike's addition to the lyric. Yeah, me too. I think it flows better for one, just from a from a singer's perspective. I think. Yeah. Um, I know there's an answer, um, and I love just the line. Um, I know now, but I had to find it by myself. Um, it's just a great line. Yeah, it's it's kind of ambiguous, but you know, it's it's relatable. I think um, it can you can you know relate it to. Um, religion, which a lot of these songs have kind of undertones of, of God. So, I mean, yeah, you can take it a lot of different ways. I never really understood what the song was about when I first heard it. It wasn't until I started reading about it and kind of figured all that stuff out that I actually um, got the drug reference. But um, I think it's a really awesome lyric. I don't know, you know, much about um, how much Brian or Terry wrote, you know, which which was which or whatever but i i love it and it's very brian like the whole lyric itself it's just a very brian lyric so and it's it does have a lot of cool little phrases in it i love that i love that they they still say they trip through the day and waste all their thoughts at night um it's just a great line and yeah i've always been a fan of the lyric regardless of what it's about um it's very poetic so yeah they they finished the vocals on april 17th they add some really thick chorus and pre-chorus harmonies. Brian does a, a harmonium overdub at the same time that they're mixing down the vocals. Um, and you've got the final product. I know there's an answer.
I mean, to me, what sticks out here is the amazing vocal performance by all three, Brian, Al, and Mike. I think they all kill it. It's a great arrangement. The width and the range of the melody is pretty intense. It's it's like, you know, two octaves. And, uh, you know, it's it's perfectly suited for these three voices, which is amazing, which what is also what makes the Beach Boys so great is that there's not anything that you can write that, somebody in the band can't completely you know nail so um i always loved that about it i never knew that it was al singing when i first heard the song as a teenager um i always thought it was mike and brian but you know you can definitely tell that it's al singing second half of the verse and the pre-chorus and um i always loved the bass harmonica such an interesting sound an interesting choice for this song, especially to feature it in that instrumental break. Um, but yeah, it fits in great on Pet Sounds. I've always loved um, kind of the uplifting nature of this song, um, especially surrounded by some songs that are a little bit more melancholy. And yeah, man, hang on to your ego. It's a super creative track, and it's not one that has a lot of predictability to it. You know what I mean? Like it's it's so it's a groundbreaker. Yeah, and it's really poppy and uh, catchy. And uh, I think it's one of the ones that gets overlooked. I think sometimes people just want to talk about the controversy surrounding the lyrics. But um, the song itself and the, the craftsmanship is pretty astounding. I will rate it a 9 out of 10. Yeah, I was going to say the same. I, I think it's obviously not on the elite level of god only knows but or you know any of the other tens that we've had but purely based on composition like you were talking about and how it's not a song that you just break out your guitar and start playing you know it has all those movements it has all these little breaks and these little things that make it such a unique piece of music and for that part i mean it's nearly perfect and I mean, I think it is perfect, but if we're going to compare it to other stuff, that's even better. Obviously we can't go all, all gung ho tin on everything here, but, um, I mean, what an astounding track. Yeah. I'm a big fan, obviously. <laughs> and, um, uh, I'm excited to, uh, get into our next track that we're going to talk about. 
which is very different. It's a song called Don't Talk. A heartbreaker, a great song. So we will be back in a couple weeks with the next episode. Thank you guys for sticking around with us. Check out Endless Summer Quarterly at esquarterly.com. Check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash sailon. And then um, check out our tour dates at sailonsounds.com. You can write us an email, sailonpodcast at gmail.com, or leave us a voicemail, 615-606-3887. The wonderful music that we play for intros and outros and backgrounds, those are by Will C. Willcmusic.com. Thank you guys, as always, for joining us. We will see you real soon. Sail on, sailors, and hang on to your egos. Isolate their heads and stay in their seat. Oh, shit.